Hello, and welcome to Crafty Hands Club Magazine Podcast. I'm your host, Carice Jefferson. This podcast is for crafters of all ages and walks of life who love connecting with other crafters, making crafts a lifestyle, or ready to turn their crafts into a profitable side business. Tune in weekly for honest conversations and interviews about industry news, trends, lifestyle, and business. To have have this honest conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we know that it has been a topic for about the last year and a half, two years, and you are a published author that wrote a book called Inclusion 360, and it is so exciting to be able to have this conversation with you to get your insights, your input on what it means when we say diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Bernadette, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. First of all, I just want to make sure my my book is called Inclusive 360. So I don't want anyone to to get um, to get confused when they're looking for the book. It's okay. So Inclusive 360 is my book. I have a I live in Chicago in the suburbs of Chicago and I have a firm focused on diversity, equity and inclusion work within corporations and the work that I specifically do myself within my company is speaking and writing. So that's my favorite thing to do is really to to get up and do workshops and keynote speaking. And I have a weekly newsletter that I write every week called Five Things. And it's really, it's called Five Things Bringing Good Vibes to DEI. So good vibes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's my, it's it's my discipline each week to find what I consider to be good vibes and things focus on things that are going right instead of things that are going wrong. So that's something I do every week through this five things newsletter is I, I find these stories of things that are going right. I share them with my readers. And then on Monday, I gather on LinkedIn with with a colleague and we talk about these good vibes in DEI. And, you know, I just want to lead from a place of inspiration rather than fear. Because there are a lot of good things happening. Yes, it is. And can you talk about some of the good things that are happening in DEI? Yeah, I just did my weekly newsletter today, actually. So I'll tell you about some of the stories that are going to be in the, the newsletter that goes out tomorrow. And, you know, the first one is about how it's been two years since George Floyd was murdered. And in that time, there were right afterwards, there were a lot of commitments made by companies to do things right, to do things better. One of the major commitments that was made was by a, a bunch of major banks who decided that they were going to invest billions of dollars in the black community by investing in banks that serve the black community. And so we're talking about banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citibank, Wells Fargo, you know, who've collectively really invested. And I'm not going to say donated because they definitely didn't donate, but they invested billions of dollars in these other banks who are now being able to offer more personal loans, business loans, and mortgages 
to black members of those communities. And so that's ultimately creating greater wealth, creating greater opportunity, creating greater equity. These are people who have been excluded from loans due to systemic racism and disenfranchisement for decades and now they have greater access so you know it's it's it is a slow journey all of these things a slow process but things are working yeah it's it's definitely a slowly but surely thing and i want i do want to apologize your book is called inclusive 360 and speaking of the title i like the design of the book it had different colors shapes sizes that pretty much sums up you know including everyone so i thought that that was clever and thank you before we dive a little bit into what your book had talked about there was one story that stood out to me but before that in terms of that so i'm african-american and one of the things that I saw for the first time was African-American female business owners. Uh, in During the pandemic, that was like the first time seeing grants and loans being made available because before the pandemic happened, that you had to search high and low, and there was very little in terms of grants. Now, when it comes to loans, loans were always there, but they were crappy, you know, they were mm -hmm. small dollar amounts with unreasonable interest rates. And then women were trying to, you know, look into an investor and they would be, you know, only to be offered horrible deals. So it was, mm -hmm. you know, like you went for losing. And so one of the things that I've seen other African-American business owners do was they started one business and then they opened up their second business and then they could cash flow the second business with the income that was coming in from the first business, which is fine if it's there, but, you know, to grow and expand, it's going to come a time where you're going to need some additional funding from other sources. So that was good that you brought that up. How do you feel about, do you feel that after George Floyd, murder happened two years ago exact do you feel that a lot of things just didn't get done and it was kind of like in that moment you know let's talk let's talk about it if it's something that's going on let us know you know especially like in the workplace or mm -hmm. in terms of like giving to non-for-profits or community organizations to promote more DEI do you think that people just treat it kind of like, okay, this is in the meantime, or do you think they, you know, just said it because it was like in that moment, and then as time moved on, it was like out of sight, out of mind? It's a great question. And, you know, I'm not black. So I don't, I don't, I certainly don't have all the answers. And I, I will only speak from from the work that I see with with the clients that we're working with. And I know that a lot of companies have the best of intentions or, or have pretty good intentions, or at least some employees have pretty good intentions. But they also have competing priorities. And they also have a lot of other stuff going on with resignations and 
just just stuff you know pandemic stuff and and so you know i'm not making excuses but it's not perfect i've i i know a lot of companies that first year held listening sessions they made commitments and now they're being held accountable for those commitments and they are moving really slowly progress moves frustratingly slowly but you know we're we are still having those conversations with companies and we are still asking those questions what are you doing what have you done and and really looking to to hold them accountable i talk about it in my newsletter all the time is we need to, you need to be held accountable for this because you're by us by your employees by everyone mm -hmm. yeah your word is your bond and one of the things i think when it comes to diversity equity and inclusion people assume that it's kind of like a one-time thing or, you know, oh, okay, we'll make it diverse or, you know, focus on one particular segment, right? Like we'll make it diverse, but then inclusion and equity falls by the wayside and then mm -hmm. wonder why it's not working. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us from a realistic point of view with the companies that you have worked with on in terms of like diversity, equity, and inclusion, What's like the average, and I know it depends, you know, on the work that's willing to be put in, but what amount of time does it take a company for them to really get a solid foundation when it comes to DEI? Uh, years, five, 10 years. And, and it's got to start with leaders. It's got to start with leaders actually making this a priority, setting a clear vision leaders establishing their own sense of purpose around this and communicating that. And then there's a whole lot of other steps, but it's gotta be consistent. And because if it's just, you know, one workshop once a year and there's no other meat behind it, then you're not gonna see any changes. You're not gonna see any meaningful changes anyway. And so there's gotta be a lot of substance and that, that takes a while. So I, I understand the frustration with the pace of change. And, and I do believe that that frustration is, va is valid because we know that companies can make change quickly when they need to, like they did in the beginning of the pandemic. We know that, is, that it is possible. I have conversations with a lot of good folks who are so afraid of making mistakes and getting it wrong. They're afraid of being canceled and that those fears lead to stagnation. And that's what we're trying to, to push them past is the fear of getting it wrong and, and just encourage them to keep going. Yeah. So in terms of your organization, Bernadette, what are, what are some things that are a continuous struggle for your company in terms of DEI? Because You'll look at that as the expert, and people may feel like, okay, she got it all together. I'm pretty sure there's nothing going on that don't need to be fixed. Within my own company, within my own small business? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I am, I'm just hiring my first employee now. My, she's going to become, thank you, my very first, you know, full-time payroll employee, you know, I, it, it's like all small businesses, I 
you know, have questions about scaling and investing and figuring out what when the timing is right to make these decisions. She's someone who's been a contractor with my company for a couple of years now. So we have a great working relationship already, but she needed her health insurance and it was time. And so I knew that if I wanted to keep her, this was something that I needed to to commit to. And it's terrifying as a small business owner to sort of step out on that limb, but it's also feels like it's the equitable thing to do because I, I want to treat her and everyone else on my team fairly. Yeah. And, you know, and that's just one example. I've been very intentional as I've built my company about hiring people on my team who could help me understand diverse perspectives. And that, that part has been really intentional for me. Something that I don't have on, someone that I don't have on my team is someone who has a, a visual impairment. And so I don't know all the things and we made some mistakes. For example, we were called out on social media recently because the uh, social media posts to our company Facebook page didn't have alt text or an image description. So people who were visually impaired and used a screen reader couldn't see what the images read, what those images looked like, because the there was no image description in our posts. So that's not something I was really aware of. And I hadn't known that our social media posts were going out without that. So, you know, we were being exclusive. So it's it, there are a million ways to be inclusive and we're not always going to get it right all of the time. And we're all on a journey, even the person who does this for a living. And so I think we just need to give ourselves permission to make mistakes and keep going. That's a good point because there are going to be some mistakes made and because, you know, you're building something. You're not going into mm -hmm. something that's already there. You're building this you know, with your own company. And thank you so much for sharing that particular incident because with the mag with the online magazine, when I do SEO, mm -hmm. a lot of times the alt image, I forget it. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that, that made me think like, and I mean, in the back of my head, I was like, I need to start doing the alt image. So that way it can increase SEO and visibility mm -hmm. and so forth. And so when you put it in that context, that made me really, you know, that, that brought an alarm like, okay, it's time to do this now. Because, you know, we don't think about that when we are posting on social media or, you know, we're doing it for our email list. We, we don't think about those things, but now, it's very it's important that we do think about those things. There was there's one company out in California, they do uh something similar to what you do with DEI, but in the theater space. And one of the okay. things that and I write plays, so that really got my interest. And I started noticing that theater companies are being more inclusive so they do have you you may see performances that are for the hearing impaired they may have it in either a caption or they have an interpreter on stage to do sign language because right even, i love that yeah and even with hear, hearing impaired individuals 
you have to be careful because not every person that's hearing impaired does sign language. Some can read lips. Not every person who's hearing impaired likes captions. So mm-hmm. it, it goes into knowing the the people in your community and providing equitable resources to them. That's true. And also not being afraid to ask questions because we don't know how to serve the people, whether they're our, our employees or our customers, if we don't ask what they need. You know, I just, I, I'm not a mind reader. My, my partner wishes that I was, but I'm not. No, we're not mind readers. I mean, we may know some things or have an idea of how something might be, but at the end of the day, we don't have that ability. <laughs> but we have, we can't be afraid to ask questions and, and admit that we don't know. And, right. and I think that, that that a lot of people are afraid to ask questions and are afraid to admit what they don't know. Yeah. And why do you think that people are afraid of admitting and asking questions? Because when we were kids, we would talk, always ask questions. If you don't know, say you don't know. Uh, and I then think... as adults. Yeah, I think that there's there have been has been a leadership style for decades now. And the leadership style has really been fear based, and if you don't know, then you can be look you can look stupid on the team. You could be seen as weak. You can be seen as you know foolish or not worthy to be a leader. I think that there's just a lot of fear of getting it wrong. That is a, a result of just this this dominant leadership style that's sort of been the dominant paradigm for for centuries sort of this... go ahead sorry go ahead i thought you were finished uh, no no i i am finished <laughs> okay what are some ways that organizations can start to incorporate dei not Jumping right in, right into the deep end, but starting off slow and then just building a little bit at a time. Because a lot of times, I think when we get into projects, we go all in, and then along the way, we lose that momentum and that motivation, and then we mm-hmm. don't see anything right away, and then we just give up altogether. So yeah. to avoid that. What what do you think is the best way for organizations that would like to foster DEI? I think it's going to be important to establish some quick wins off the bat that can build momentum and get employees excited about this. And But I do think that it has to start with leadership. It has to start with leadership normalizing these conversations, setting goals, and explaining those goals in the context of their own why. When I'm talking to leaders, I encourage them to find a way to make this personal. How, even if you are a straight white guy, how can you personalize diversity? Is it because you have, you know, a a biracial grandchild? Is it because you have a kid who's gay or a family member with a disability? Like how can you personalize it and, and put them that person at the center of your work <clears throat> and talk about it. And when leaders 
start to talk about this stuff, it really does give other people permission to do the same, other members of their team permission to talk about this stuff as well. And then we start to see more and more buy-in. If we don't have buy-in of everyone, especially people who have historically been in power, then we're really not going to see any progress. So we really need to make sure that we're involving even the, the people who might not see themselves as diverse as part of these conversations and really invite them to, to lead the way because we can't always expect people who have historically been underrepresented and historically been marginalized to, to do all this work themselves. They, there has to be a, a level of accountability and a priority that comes from leadership. Mm-hmm. Now, you made a good point. It has to start with leadership because they are the leader. And when the leader sets, the sets a good example, people will be more willing to follow that. Do you think that it takes collective action or do you think that just the responsibility of leadership because it's a difference well i think that there needs to be you know level of proactivity here right so not just reacting every time something goes wrong but also being proactive about you know offering employees various kinds of training and looking at the hiring process and looking for ways to mitigate bias and you know there's a lot of different types of policies that can be changed to create greater equity and more inclusion but it does require a proactive approach and honestly no matter what kinds of policies you have changing or how much training you do if leaders aren't the ones who are setting the bar and owning this themselves, then it's not going to trickle down. Yeah. And I think also having those honest, hard to talk about conversations will, you know, be another way to get, get, get staff to buy into DEI. I think, you know, when people feel like they are comfortable enough to talk about things and to, you know, be open about the different biases that are out here, and there are so many. I think that would be a good start for for companies to get in get into that because that's those are that goes into the small wins that you talked about. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just important to build on those small wins because then that's when we start to see momentum and we celebrate those small wins because when we celebrate them we're inviting more people to the party and more more people to the party who then might want to get themselves involved in in this work or start to see themselves invested in this work or find their own sense of purpose in this work. Yes. Now there there's a magazine there's two magazines around DEI that I recently read one is called Diverse Women and the other one is called Inclusion and it made me well, before I had even purchased the magazines, I had thought about Positioning Crafty Hands Club to be about DEI. And not because it's, you know, something that people are talking about, but because it was a vision at the start of the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I could talk about my personal experience. I grew up 
being black, which I had no problem with being a black girl, but I grew up, you know, I'm dark skinned. I was an overweight kid, didn't have what's considered the good hair, and mm-hmm. soft-spoken, sometimes spoke with a southern vernacular. So mm-hmm. those things were considered strikes against me, quote-unquote, by my peers. So a lot of times, people didn't even offer me the opportunity to get to know me. They just formed, you know, these opinions and put me pretty much in a terrible box. So mm-hmm. with the magazine, I always think about the underdog. I always, you know, go out. Like I, I tell people all the time, I don't care if you have 50 followers. I don't care if you have 500,000 followers. Everybody gets treated the same. So I don't promote somebody more than I promote another person. I distribute the same. I create the graphics. I, you know, put in the time and the work to, you know, copy edit, send it out to get it professionally edited, and I really make the story around the crafters based on things that they have shared in the interview. So, mm-hmm. um, and I want to expand on that more, you know, getting crafters that are visually impaired, some that may be hearing impaired, or, you know, have unique disabilities, because that's another thing, too. So, we try... We try to be diverse, and what I mean by we, we as a society. We try to be mm-hmm. diverse, and when we look at things, we kind of targeting the same groups over and over again, you know, and then we feel like just because there's a variety, we're being diverse. Well, not not exactly. Mm-hmm. And so sure. I just wanted to share a little bit on the magazine and of what, you know, we are trying to do in terms of promote that diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because, again, in the craft space, it has came a long way, but there's still room. And there's a lot of, there's a lack of it in in the craft industry. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think that there's a lack of diversity in in a whole lot of industries. And I really applaud what you're doing. I think that these these conversations have to happen. And I you know, taking your own challenges and experiences and and looking for opportunities to create better spaces and amplify other voices so no one feels excluded. I I really applaud that. You know, it can be lonely work, DEI. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't it's the the rewards are not always fast. <laughs> right? right. And so it requires a lot of patience and willingness to educate others, which can be really hard as well. It can involve a lot of emotional labor. Oh, yeah. And let's talk a little bit about your book. So there was a story you shared because I remember before before the book and before what you're doing now, you your business helped couples that were LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. because now it's more segments of the community. And I remember you would go around and, and speak and, you know, do a lot of mm-hmm. things in, in the in the space. And it was something that you resonate with. One of the things that stood out, you were working with a same sex couple and there was a I wanna be correct, Joanne 
What's mm-hmm. their name? Joanne, yep. Yep. And was trans transgender or transsexual? Transgender. Okay, transgender. Okay. Yeah. And you talked about how you learned something from Joanne. Can you talk about that experience? Sure. So a long time ago, I started a business in Massachusetts, which was the first state in the country to have marriage for same-sex couples. And I started a business specializing in planning weddings for these couples, basically to be a gay wedding planner. And my vision was to help these couples feel safe when navigating a very traditional industry that had a lot of sort of bride and groom roles and expectations and a lot of religion, you know, in, in weddings as well. And in many religions didn't have, didn't accept same-sex couples or marriage equality. So my vision was really to help these couples feel safe and help them navigate these weddings free from discrimination. One of the couples that I worked with wasn't just a, a lesbian couple, but that one of the brides was, all, was actually transgender. And Joanne had a lot of fears going into planning the wedding. She had fears about her appearance. She was afraid that her shoulders were too broad or that she didn't have hips and she was afraid that she wouldn't look good in a dress that her hair piece was going to come off she was afraid of discrimination from the bridal consultant who was helping her with her gown so she just really had a lot of fears particularly around the wedding dress and you know being able to work with her on that and make sure that she did have a safe and positive experience and make sure that she did become the bride she'd always dreamed of was was a gift for me. Her wedding was at a church and it was a spectacular ceremony where she was walked down the aisle by her father, who I think was about 85 years old. And when I was working with Joanne, she was about 60 and she had just been fired from her job because she was transgender and had to accept a lower paying job. So, you know, she had been through a lot and here she was being able to get married as a woman for the first time and it was a really an amazing gift to be part of that with her and to to know that i helped her in that way and that's a really big reason that i continue to do the work that i do even though i you know i'm not involved in that wedding industry anymore and don't do that kind of work in any capacity anymore it was just really meaningful to be able to to help her in that way and, and know that that's what my, why I was put on this world, on this earth, to make a difference yeah. like that. Yeah, and that that ties into your experience in college where you understood your why. And the lady who wrote the foreword in your book, she talked about that, that what Bernadette is doing now is who she was years ago. It's funny how the that's a long and winding road, right? I never would have expected mm-hmm. things to sort of turn around the way they did, but when we have a sense of purpose, it's amazing how the universe the universe works to make it all come together. Yeah. And Bernadette, I know you don't have much much more time, and I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the book, but for the respect of time, can you tell listeners what they should expect? from your book, who you, who the book is for, what are some takeaways that they can get from it, whether they read it themselves or refer it to someone? 
Sure. So the book is really written for corporations and for companies or organizations. It's, it's, there is definitely something for everyone, but it's at its heart, it's a book about policy change. It's about changing the systems to create greater equity. And by the systems, I mean the systems of hiring, the systems of promotion, the systems of procurement, the systems of marketing, product design, sales marketing and customer service. All of these systems lack inclusion and equity. And so how do we how do we change the systems? And the book is basically, you know, a, a guide full of solutions. Because like I said before, what I have found is that there are a lot of good people who want to do the right thing, but they're afraid of getting it wrong. They're afraid of making mistakes and they don't know where to start. And the book is my my guide to help them figure out where to start and to really help them remove the excuses for not doing this work. It's the book is so packed with solutions that they should be able to get into action. Cool. And you talked about your newsletter and I've read um your new one of your newsletters a while back <clears throat> and there was also a heartfelt article that you had wrote on LinkedIn where you talked about you not an African American woman but the privilege of unknowingly. So I really appreciated that honesty and you were pretty much like that in Toastmasters. So it didn't surprise me that you would be willing to talk about something where most people would, wouldn't be able to talk about it. They might talk about conversation up front. So if, if anyone wants to access your newsletters, where, where should they go? They can subscribe to the newsletter at fivethingsdei.com and they can look at old copies of the newsletter on my blog, which is at the theequalityinstitute.com. Now, thank you for saying that. Honestly, okay. what, what's important to me is to, to, I don't want to be like holier than thou about this stuff. I am still learning. We're all still learning. And I share my experiences and my journey as a way to give other people permission to do the same and feel like it's okay to talk about what what their experiences have been like what i think the stories that you're talking about is really about my lack of awareness about my privilege for years and years and years and how i feel a very strong sense of responsibility now now that i have more awareness of why it is important for me to keep doing this work and specifically work around anti-racism and dismantling systems of white supremacy because I benefit from those systems. Whether or not I benefit intentionally, it doesn't matter. I benefit from those systems and those systems are changing very, very slowly and I'm going to keep talking about it and I'm going to keep doing the work that I do because I, I believe in sharing messages that can inspire positive change. Bye.